1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All right. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to First Timothy. Oh, we are back in the great little book of First Timothy. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started, all right? Uh, Father, I thank you so much uh, for my friends here, my brothers and sisters at King's Cross Church, and um, we're just thankful right now to have opportunity to open up your word, uh, to learn from it, to learn from you, God. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that just the, the words of, of my mouth, the, the meditation and thoughts on all our, of all our hearts uh, would be pleasing uh, to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we're back in 1 Timothy, uh, continuing our series there. Uh, took a break for uh, a little bit over a month for uh, the Christmas season, uh, and then the beginning of the year, kind of going through uh, some of our, our vision and value points. Uh, but we're, we're back now. Uh, in this series. And uh, just by way of review, uh, remember that Paul is the author here, all right? The Apostle Paul, kind of OG apostle, one of the original church planters, he uh, uh, wrote most of the New Testament, including the book of 1 Timothy, and he's writing to Timothy, uh, his sort of son in the faith, his little protege, right? A man that he trained in pastoral ministry, and he's writing to Timothy to uh, encourage him and encourage Timothy's church in Ephesus to press on in faithfulness and to behave, to conduct themselves in a way that a healthy church should. And he gives the reason for this. The reason that he even writes this letter is stated right there in today's text. If you look at me at it with me in verses 14 and 15, uh, Paul says to Timothy, he says, uh, I hope to come to you soon. He's not writing just to Timothy, but also to the church that Timothy pastors. He says, I hope to come to you guys soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So right here in the point that we're at in 1 Timothy, he just gives the whole purpose of writing this letter. It's where we got the subtitle, Blueprints for the Household of God, because when you're trying to build something, it helps to have the blueprints, right? And so if you're trying to build a healthy gospel local church, 1 Timothy is a great book to be in. Now, uh, several years ago, um, the Washington Post, they conducted this little social experiment. It was like one of the, you might remember it, it was uh, years ago, um, but... It was like one of the original viral videos that went around, right? And uh, the Washington Post, they did this social experience that they recorded on video. They put it on the internet uh, at a subway station in D.C. Uh, And what they did is they convinced uh, this famous violinist by the name of Joshua Bell, uh, who's considered one of the greatest uh, classical players of our day, well, one of the best classical musicians in the entire world, uh, and they convinced him to put on just a regular plain t-shirt uh, and a baseball cap and uh, just pretend to be a, a busker, you know, like a street musician, like uh, trying to, to get people to just drop money in his hat, 
right? Uh, and uh, just that week, he was actually in D.C. to perform at a great concert hall in the area where tickets were like upwards of like $150. Um, but their idea was let's put him in a subway uh, and have him play. Uh, and what happened is Bell opened up his case, his violin case, um, to took, take out his $3.5 million violin uh, from the 18th century, and he played some of the most beautiful and difficult solo pieces uh, in classical music uh, by Bach and, and Schubert and, and others like that, like for, for about an hour. Uh, and they were guessing that because of the time of day that he was there at the subway station, that uh, they were guessing around 1,000 people would walk by. Uh, they, they guessed that uh, maybe 80 people would stop to actually listen, and maybe half of those people, 40, would actually recognize the quality. Be like, wow, this is, this is actually really good music. This guy's got, got talent here. Um, they thought maybe he might walk away with like 150 bucks, you know, as people dropped uh, money in his hat or his case. Uh, what ended up happening is that over the course of an hour, more than 1,000, but 1,100 people ended up walking by. Only seven people stopped to listen, but 27 people dropped money uh, in his case, and he made a total of $40. You see, the point of this social experiment is to expose the fact that, that most people most people, because of the context, or really because they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, most people, they don't recognize the greatness that's right in front of them as they walk by. Maybe they were too busy. Maybe they just didn't have an ear for it, like we said. But I, don't, I think that's, that is not unlike the role of the local church in the world. Look, man, people are busy. I know people are busy. And maybe people don't have an eye to see how important the local church is. Or maybe they don't have an ear to hear how beautiful and hopeful her message is. In fact, I think most people outside of the church, they actually have a low view of the church. Several years ago, uh, interestingly enough, also from the Washington Post, a journalist described uh, Christians as, quote, largely poor, uneducated, and easy to manipulate and command, end quote. A lot of people were obviously not happy uh, with that statement, but that doesn't really matter because it really conveyed uh, what I think is a real perception out there uh, that a lot of people have of the church, that the church is not that impressive, not much to look at, doesn't, doesn't have the appearance of, of success and beauty and transcendent. But like the story or the social experience with Joshua Bell in the subway, uh, I think many people just don't know how wrong they are about the church, how special she is, and they just pass her by. But for Paul, as he's writing to Timothy and the church in Ephesus, for Paul, this community of Jesus this community of Jesus followers that we call the local church was so much more beautiful than anything else this world has to offer. It was far more than a spiritual support group. It was far more than just a social club that we belong to. It was central, central to God's work in the world. 
And so here's our big idea from this particular text, is that the church is central to the purposes of God in the world. And so we should see the beauty of the church and the joy of loving her membership, living out her mission, and confessing her message. Look at verse 14 and 15 again with me. Paul says, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, the behavior that Paul is calling for from Christians at this church, and really in all churches, including this church today, is, is based on who they are. And he gives a few different descriptions of, of who they are, of their identity in these two verses. Uh, here's our first point. We see look at the membership of the local church. The membership of the local church. In other words, what it means to just truly belong to a church. You see, first Paul says that we are the expression of God's family. He literally calls us the household of God. And this house, this house doesn't belong to a man. It doesn't belong to a group of people. It's not a worldly institution. It's a divine institution. It's God's institution in the world. The church is the family, the family that you've got to hang out with that's going to be there with you for all eternity. Think about that. The church is the family that you're going to hang with for eternity. Look, your biological family may or may not know Christ. You may or may not get to spend eternity with him or with them. I hope that you will. You pray for them, love them, share the gospel, the hope of the gospel with them. But also know that the church that you're a part of is given to you as your spiritual family. A spiritual family that is there to invest in your growth. That the spiritual family that God is going to use to, to sharpen you, to grow you, to mature you, till you look more like Jesus. But just a few weeks ago, uh, January 1st, at the beginning of the year, we walked through uh, this point in Acts 2 where it says that all the believers of the first church, they devoted themselves to fellowship and communion. You see, these first Christians, if you remember, they understood that their new life following Jesus was communal. It was communal. It wasn't a solo act. It wasn't a solo project. It's something they did in community. And so they devoted themselves, Acts 2 says, to fellowship, which is more than just like hanging out together at a coffee shop, right? No, it's the kind of fellowship that like Frodo had in The Lord of the Rings, right? It's the kind of fellowship from Fellowship of the Ring. It's taking care of one another, having each other's backs, Walking alongside each other, holding one another accountable, investing in each other's growth, helping our families follow Jesus faithfully. The household of God, Paul calls it. Something else that that means when we say that this is God's house is that you need to know who the head of this house is. If you don't know who the head of the house is, then you might act like rebellious teenagers who just kind of make up their own rules, right? Like, I was a bad teenager. Uh, ask, ask, ask my sister, right? <laughs> she knows I was a bad teenager. I was rebellious. I lied. I snuck out. I broke the rules. I lived by my own rules. And let me tell you, that did not turn out well for me in my home growing up. 
by the grace of God, my life turned around. Uh, I ended up turning out uh, a lot, a lot better than we all expected later on. Um, right? I mean, hopefully you agree. Right? Uh, but you see, a good household has rules, guidelines to operate by. My children know that there's a certain time that they need to be in bed by. They wake up usually by a certain time. Uh, they act a certain way at, a di- at the dinner table. They've got responsibilities that need to be taken care of. Uh, they know that there's a way they're supposed to treat their mother and, uh, and other adults that they meet. My kids, they actually had uh, uh, some friends over the other day. Um, and there are all these little boys uh, over at our house, and they start, like, throwing things around. They start throwing, uh, like, like, you know, those razor scooters, just throwing them up in the air to see how high they can get them and have them crash down. They went into the backyard to the playhouse and, like, turned it over so they could see what it looked like, like, upside down. And they were, like, dragging the plastic playhouse, like, across uh, the ground as little boys do. Uh, and I, I hear all this commotion, and I go back there, and I see, like, this upside-down playhouse uh, that used to be in the corner. Uh, and suddenly, like, it's here, and part of it's over there. And I'm like, dude, what do you guys do? Well, we don't do that here. Right, uh, and one of the kids is like, "Ah, oh, we're just playing, right?" Like, uh, well, it's like obviously you're just playing, right? But we maybe you play that way uh, at your house, but at our house we don't throw things like that. We don't turn furniture upside down like that. Um, at least, like, not without asking, right? If it's like a special day, it's like let's make a fort with an upside down house or something like that. And, like, we'll plan accordingly for that, right? But normally we don't do this kind of stuff. You got guidelines to operate by. And the Bible says the church is a family household. And in God's household, he wants you to, to, to know how to behave, as the text says, so that you know how to live with one another. You know how to honor God with the way that the local church is, conducts its life and is ordered. He wants God's people to adjust to God's rules in God's house because God is the head. And he also calls us, the church, He calls us the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Now, that word church is this Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia, which literally means assembly. A physical gathering together, an assembly. We are, in other words, the assembly of the living God. Now, that is an amazing phrase. The assembly of the living God. You see, that that sort of phrase would take Bible readers back to where Jacob meets with God and and says, surely God is in this place. Or to all the descriptions in the Old Testament of, of the temple, which is where God's indwelling presence would be found. But the Bible tells us that in the New Covenant, because we live on this side of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, there's no more need for a temple in Jerusalem. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says that now we, the church, are the temple of the living God. In other words, now that Jesus has poured out his spirit upon the church, God's presence is now where? With us. It's not in a place, but in a people. It's us, the church. We are the place of God's presence. God's glory no longer shines through a place, but through a people. And as the body of Christ, we are the new temple. We are God's new dwelling place. And listen, that is so significant. 
This should change everything for you for how you view the gathering of the local church, the assembling of God's people. Because when a local church gathers, this is the closest you will ever get to heaven on earth. What we're doing right now, when God's people, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, gather together on the Lord's Day, on, the, on Sunday, this is the closest that you're ever going to get to heaven on this earth until Jesus returns. This is the closest you'll ever get to the heavenly kingdom, the throne of grace, our risen Savior, and all the saints who have gone before us, all the lost ones that we have loved. Like, this is it. This is it. The dwelling place of God is in us. In Ephesians 2.22, it says, in him, speaking of Jesus, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Man, don't miss how significant this is. Don't miss how significant it is when we gather together like this as the assembly of God's people that the living God is here among us? Now, is God the omnipresent one, the one who is always present no matter where? Yes, absolutely. But there is something special and unique going on, the Bible says, when his household gathers to worship in his presence, to listen together to his word, to gather at his table, at the Lord's table for communion. There is something so unique the Bible says, something so special, something different, something almost supernatural, because it is about the presence of God when the local church gathers. And listen, if that picture is not enough to elevate how you view the local church, Paul says that the church has also been entrusted with the mission to guard God's truth, to guard the truth and get it out. This is point number two, the mission of the local church. In the mission of the local church, he also calls us at the end of verse 15, a pillar and a buttress of truth. There's some unique words in there, right? Like buttress, like does he kiss his mother with that mouth, right? Like, so let's talk about these words. What is a pillar? A pillar is a column of support, right? We all know what a pillar is. Tall vertical structure used to, to hold up a building, to support it, right? Now, a buttress is another kind of architectural structure uh, that's usually like built uh, up against the wall. It's usually like the, si the, si the, the, the not size, the, the shape of a triangle, right? Like up against the wall. Uh, sometimes you see these on the outside of ancient buildings, like a triangle built on the outside to help support that wall uh, up. Or it might protrude from the wall, like on the inside, like coming down. It's usually a triangle or an arc, right? That's what a buttress is. It's another uh, uh, a structure of support. Now, Paul, he says the church is the pillar and the buttress, the support of the truth. Now, listen, some people are confused by this. Um, like, there's liberal denominations out there that run with this idea, and they say this tells us that the church produces truth, right? We produce truth as, as it evolves, but that's not what this says. 
We're, if we're asking, does the church produce truth or does, the church, or does truth produce the church, the answer is the second one. God's word creates the church. His truth and his promises creates the church. The reformers were, were fond of saying that the church is a creature, in other words, created from, of the word. You see, but a healthy church is cultivated when it accepts, feeds on, and is nourished by God's truth. That's what it means to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Um, Mark Dever says that uh, the purpose of preaching God's word to God's people is to build up or edify the church, which is God's will for the church. Whether or not numerical growth results from biblical preaching in any given congregation at any given time, Christ's church will experience true growth. He's talking spiritual growth from the inside and edification through teaching and instruction. Now, so why, why is it that Paul can say that the church is, is the pillar and the support of the truth if the truth is what creates the church? It's because what he's talking about is... This, the local assembly. What he's talking about is the local church. It's his way of saying that the place that God has appointed to be the place that truth is found, that, that the, the place that truth comes out from is from the people, the church. So if someone wants to know the truth of who God is, if someone wants to know why we're here, what on earth we're here for, what is our purpose in the world, then that truth is found and embodied by God's people in the church as they study the word, as they live out the word. Devers says this elsewhere. He says, the doctrine of the church is important because it is tied to the good news itself, to the gospel itself. The church is to be the appearance of the gospel. It is what the gospel looks like when played out in people's lives. You take away the church and you take away the visible manifestation of the gospel in the world. You see, the church is where the gospel, where the word becomes visible. It's how the word gets on display. The church is where we see people who were once spiritually dead come to new life in Jesus. As we receive the word together, as we say it to one another, as we memorize it together, as we serve together and bring the word to the community and the world together, the eternal truth of God lives on and brings hope to the world. What does a pillar do? What, what do columns do? What does a support, a buttress do? It holds things up. It supports it. And so as the church, you have the privilege and the responsibility to preserve God's word in some sense by holding firm to it, by holding fast to it, holding it up like a pillar from age to age, from generation to generation. This is what the church does to defend against false teaching in the first century and also in the 21st century, to push forward the good news and the hope that the world needs. We also need to proclaim it. 
We need to hold it on high, put it on display. That's another thing a pillar does, is to hold something on high. That's what we want for this church. This is our privilege. This is our God-given responsibility. We don't want to hold like, like one man's opinions on high. We don't want to hold one man's innovations and ideas on high. We don't want to hold like our brand, our possessions, or our style on high. No, we want to hold one thing on high, the word of God, so that people see it in our lives and hear it proclaimed through our mouths, the pillar and buttress of truth. Let that soak in. That is our mission. That's why the church is here. Does the world need truth? Absolutely. It's starving for truth. Where can it be found? God's word, as it is made known on display through the church. That is our mission as a church, that for the glory of God and the joy of the world, that we hold fast to the timeless truths of Scripture. We hold fast onto them, and we get them out there. I pray for that, for this church. Monday's my day off, and so Tuesday's like my, my Monday. And at the beginning of um, every, every Tuesday, I pray for that. I sit down, I think about all of you, and I pray that, that you would just know God. But not just know God, but that you would also see his, his presence, that you would see him at work in the church and learn to love his truths. Now, the mission of the church is to hold on to the truth, but there is a primary message at the center of all God's truth. And that leads us into our third and final point where we see the message of the local church. The message of the local church. You see, the church holds on to and protects and lifts up the truth of God, but we must remember that we do have one primary message, that the secret, the center of the Christian life is Jesus himself. Read verse 16 with me. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up in glory. When Paul says, we confess, that's his way of saying, by our common confession. In other words, by our common voice. Christians of that day uh, knew these words, right? That's why if you look in your Bible, they're, they're indented. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Like that section of Scripture is indented because this was some sort of hymn or poem or creed uh, that was circulating around at the time. By the way, this is why we as a church value uh, creeds and confessions of faith as a church, Right, Because throughout history, they have always served as great and helpful learning tools to help us grow in the truth and be aware of what's false. So when he says that this is, this thing that we confess is the mystery of godliness, 
That word mystery means something that wasn't known before, but it can be known now. That's what he means. That's what that word mystery means. It wasn't known before, but it is known now if you have the eyes ready to see it. The mystery of godliness, he says, is through the rest of the verse, all about Jesus. And you might say, look, I thought this Christian thing was about how to live a certain life. I thought it was about getting along with people or knowing how to vote a certain way at election time. I thought Christianity was about how to have a happy marriage or how to raise a family and how to be good people. And Paul says, look, the mystery of godliness is Jesus himself. Don't miss that. He's the big E on the eye chart. Don't miss it. He's the whole point. Everything else, everything else about who we are and how we live flows through that point. Think about it like this. When we, when we moved into this space uh, um, after, after COVID and, and changed our, our meeting time to Sunday afternoons, uh, and we moved into, into this room, uh, our, our great hosts over at uh, uh, Foothills Church, they, they, gave, they gave me two keys, one for this room uh, and, and one for the classrooms in the other room. Um, they didn't give a master key, right? Because there are certain rooms that like, they don't need us to have access to, like administrators and offices and things like that. Uh, and see, a person with, with one key with one type of key, can open one lock. But a person who's got a master key can open any lock, can open any room. The master key for us is Jesus. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the master key because the mystery of godliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to be right with God in any of these other areas of life, it all comes through him first. It all comes through a real and thriving relationship with Jesus. And then what Paul does is he summarizes who Jesus is by citing this creed, reciting this creed. Let's go through each point. He says that he was manifested in the flesh. In other words, Jesus wasn't created he wasn't created in the flesh, but he was manifested, revealed in the flesh. That means Jesus existed even before his birth. And at the first Christmas, the word was made flesh. God himself was manifested in the flesh. It says he was vindicated by the spirit, meaning that the spirit of God affirmed that Jesus was from God and was God himself. The Spirit of God confirmed all that Jesus claimed to be as God's Son. Do you remember the scene at his baptism? Light shines, the voice of God comes booming down and says, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And all the miracles that Jesus did were evidence of the Spirit's power on him and through him, and ultimately leading up to his resurrection from the grave. It says he was also seen by angels. That's the next line in the creed. He was seen by angels. Now, this is an interesting one. Like, why, would it, why does it matter that Jesus was the one who was seen by angels? 
I think this invites us to consider the angel's perspective on all of this in history. You see, angels had a unique vantage point as the story of God's saving work just uh, unfolded uh, throughout history. What did they see? Well, they did see Jesus. They saw him in heaven prior to his birth. They knew that Jesus, the son of God, was the preexistent one who always was. And then they saw the eternal God when he was made flesh. The one who always was came down into our history, into created history, human history. And the angels watched in amazement as the eternal son came in the form of a child, a baby, taking on human flesh. The angels saw him. They observed him on the cross. I want you to imagine what it must have been like from their perspective to see the preexistent son of God falsely accused, to watch him beaten and spit on, mocked, to look on as a crown of thorns was pressed into his forehead or as five-inch nails pierced his hands and his feet. And as he was hoisted up, suspended between heaven and earth, man, these angels were probably eager to intervene at this point. Right? Even, even Jesus, when he was getting arrested, he told everyone, like, hey, look, calm down. Don't you think I could call, on, call upon legions of angels to help me if I wanted to? And so the angels were probably looking at, the, at Jesus on the cross being like, all right, dude, call us. We'll come. We'll help. We're here. We got you. And they were likely shocked by the Father's silence. Angels, were told, were the first to witness his resurrection. It was an angel who told the first witnesses of the empty tomb, a group of women who told them, he is not here. He's risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you now into Galilee, into the world. Follow him. Go after him. He was seen by angels. Paul continues in the creed, and he says he was proclaimed among the nations. Jesus told his disciples to go into the nations and to spread the good news of his kingdom. And guess what they did? They did, even facing persecution, even facing death. And why did they do that? Why did they proclaim the gospel outward to the nations? It's because they'd seen him alive. They'd seen him risen. They knew that his resurrected body was a foretaste of the hope that we would all be a part of. This is hope for the whole world. And so they proclaimed it among the nations, not even caring what would happen to them in response. And it says he was believed on in the world, as Paul continues. He's believed on in the world. Not only was Jesus proclaimed about, but he was believed People believed the message. They believed in him. They went from being spiritually dead to having a new life in Christ. And that's why, that's why we're here today. Because that has happened again and again and again throughout history. 
The reason many of you are in this room today is because you heard the gospel yourself. And you didn't just hear it proclaimed from someone. You came to believe in it with your heart. You believed in it, and now you stake your whole life, your whole future, the future of your family, your legacy on the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul concludes the creed when he says that he was taken up in glory. Speaking of Jesus' ascension, that after he sent his disciples and the church into the world, Jesus returned to the heavens, where right now he reigns and prepares a place for his forever family. And one day, one day he will return for his beautiful church, his, his broken, jacked up, undeserving, broken but beautiful church. You see, the local church is only as healthy and only as alive as it is connected to its Savior who lives in it and through it. Don't be fooled by the world's definition of success and beauty. A healthy church is only as alive as it is connected to the Savior who lived and suffered and died. But in him, we have new life. In him, we have real and lasting hope. I was thinking about the angels. Uh, obviously, like, yeah, I think you can tell, like, my, my, my mind was just sort of ruminating on that whole, whole part that he was seen by angels. And I was thinking about that this week. And their unique perspective, the, the angels' unique perspective on all of history. And it dawned on me that their perspective was unique and glorious and awesome, but it was still incomplete. You see, having their perspective had its advantages, but it also has its limits because they do not know what it's like to be a sinner who's received the forgiveness of sin, who's received freedom from God's wrath. They don't know what it's like to trust the Savior and now be kept by the Spirit. Jesus was seen by angels, but he did not come down for the angels. First Peter actually tells us that there are things that even angels long to know because they don't know what it's like to receive the gift of the gospel. Isn't that wild? And look, if, if the angels on high are so stunned, just marveling at how, at just the gospel that we proclaim and the beauty of the church, then how can we be so unaffected unmoved and indifferent to what they see and long to know. What they see, we experience by the grace of God. 
what they see, we celebrate every time we assemble together like this. What they long to look into, we are the object of. Great, Paul says, is the mystery of godliness. Understatement of the night. Great is the mystery of godliness. Christ came. Christ died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. He'll come for you. He'll come for me. He'll come for his broken but beautiful church if you come to him in faith. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.